Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, a podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, tonight, I haven't had him on the show for a very long time, but I'm very, very happy to welcome back the Brooklyn Borough historian, Ron Schweiger, to the program. How are you doing, Ron? Hi, good evening. How are you, Sam? Oh, I'm great. And I was, uh, you know, finally able to meet you out in Coney Island, where unfortunately we saw the Brooklyn Cyclones playoff hopes dashed in the ninth inning when uh, Carly Estrench's grandson, Mike, put an end to it with a, with a bases-clearing double. Well, like father, like son. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was unfortunate. How, how did you like the cyclone season otherwise? Well, I, I always enjoy it. I mean, uh, in the 13 years of their existence since 2001, um, uh, many of the years they did make it to the playoffs. But it's always very enjoyable seeing these young kids um, striving to make the major leagues. In fact, this past season, I believe seven or eight members of the New York Mets started with the Brooklyn Cyclones, which is, of course, the Mets farm team. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I always love the idea that a lot of these kids are just coming from college, their first professional experience, the first, uh, you know, uh, a chance with a wooden bat is in, a right. major league, is in a major league town like Brooklyn. That's right. And a lot of people still wear the Brooklyn Dodgers shirts and hats to the ball game. Absolutely. There's, there's a long history, and I, I have to say there can't be another major league experience, uh, I'm sorry, minor league experience like Brooklyn for these, uh, these, these ballplayers coming up. So that's, uh, uh, no that's question about really it. cool. Incidentally, Sam, um, this year, uh, April 9th of this year, was the 100th anniversary of the first game at Ebbets Field. Oh, so, yeah, great. So on August 29th, the Brooklyn Cyclones commemorated that event and six members of the Ebbets family was, were present at the game. And I, and I actually tried to find out if you were there. I called you a, a couple minutes before all of a sudden seeing you on the mound. <laughs> That's right. I, I was able to throw out the second first pitch. Uh, unfortunately, mine landed two feet in front of home plate. <laughs> <laughs> well, the you know, first pitch was thrown out by Kyle Ebbets. And oh, wow. Kyle... A uh, young man is the, let's see, he's the great, 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 great nephew of Charles Ebbets, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the builder of Ebbets Field. So um, the ball that landed in the dirt, the pitch that I threw, uh, each member of the Ebbets family signed the ball for me. So I was very grateful oh, that, for that. That is really neat. And, uh, you know, I'll have to try to get in touch with them. And let's stay in Coney Island right now. Uh, you know, we're talking about the demographics and the way Brooklyn has evolved over the years. Uh, from from its early Native American existence to uh, what it is today. Um, mm -hmm. So let's start with Coney Island. You know, how did Coney Island shape up over the years? And, and let's go all the way back to those Native American days. Well, uh, if we put on our time machine hats here, um, first of all, the, the, the name Coney comes from the Dutch, Konijn, K-O-N-I-J-N, the J is silent. And in 1609, um, Henry Hudson, an Englishman sailing on a Dutch ship called the 
the uh, half moon, um, he anchored off the beach of Coney Island, which didn't have that name yet, um, before he sailed up the river that now has his name. And several members of his crew, who were Dutch, rowed ashore, and uh, they did meet the local Indians. When they got back on the ship, they pointed to the shore, and in Dutch told Mr. Hudson about the conines on the island. And that is the Dutch word for a rabbit. And the very first map of the area, the Dutch map, had it listed as Conine Island, E-Y-L-A-N-T for island. And in Dutch it meant Rabbit Island. And when the English took over in 1664 from the Dutch, um, they anglicized a lot of the Dutch words, and Conine Island became Coney Island. And that's just a brief history of how it got its name. And remarkable considering it's a peninsula, and obviously, you know, they don't have the satellite view that we have. So why, why did somebody, why did they call it an island right away? Well, let me correct you. You say it's a peninsula today, but back then there were actually three separate islands. Coney Island, Brighton Beach, and Manhattan Beach were actually surrounded by water. And you see, you're learning something, Sam. Yes, I am. <laughs> and where Sheepshead Bay ends right now, where the Holocaust Memorial Park is, Sheepshead Bay used to flow right through into Coney Island Creek and surrounding the, the, the three islands. And the hurricane of 1821, that's 1821, not 1921, that was such a severe hurricane that the waves threw so much sand onto the islands that it actually connected two of the three islands. And wow. then around the turn of the century, man came along and connected the remaining two islands. So in a sense, Coney Island is no longer an island. And as you mentioned, it's now a peninsula along the southern shore of Brooklyn. That's remarkable. And thank you for that information. You know, I, that's, we're all about learning stuff here at the Veterans Sullivan Podcast. <laughs> and. So uh, obviously the Dutch are, are some of the first to settle uh, once the, you know, unfortunate, and unfortunately, you know, in terms of the Native American population, it dwindled uh, throughout the country. Um, so how, how did that start shaping up as, as we got, uh, you know, into the 1700s and, and then subsequently into the 1800s? Well, um, when the Dutch settled, um, they actually settled in five separate towns in what we now call Brooklyn or Kings County. Um, it wasn't actually named King's County until 1683, uh, of course named after the King of England at the time. Um, and the five Dutch towns were Brooklyn, spelled B-R-E-U-C-K-E-L-E-N, named after the village of Brooklyn in the Netherlands where they came from. Brooklyn, the town here in, in King's County, was actually what we now call the Brooklyn Heights downtown area of Brooklyn. Then came the Dutch town of Boswick, which eventually became Bushwick, and in Dutch, Bos means woods, so it was town in the woods. Then you had the Dutch town of Vlakbos, V-L-A-C-K-B-O-S, and there's the Bos again for woods, and Vlakbos became Flatbush, anglicized to Flatbush, and that was a, like a flat wooded plain area in the center of what's now Kings County. Then you had New Utrecht, which was named after Utrecht in the Netherlands, where the Dutch came from. Uh, then you had New Amersfoort, which was named after the Amersfoort village in the Netherlands. That became Flatlands, where I live now, here in Brooklyn. Mm. And the, so the five Dutch towns were Brooklyn, 
Boswick, Bushwick, Flatlands, New Utrecht, and Flatbush. I think I mentioned them all. And then there was one English town, and that was Gravesend. Not named after a grave, by the way. It's named after an English resort town on the southern coast of England. And that was formed by a woman named Lady Deborah Moody in the middle 1600s. And Coney Island, Brighton Beach, Sheepshead Bay, Manhattan Beach, that whole area is today the neighborhood of Gravesend. Uh, okay, so, so all, all of those, technically all of those neighborhoods or all of those uh, sections are now Gravesend. That's right, and it was Gravesend back then too. Okay. And, it, it, and, so it's a, and incidentally, the only one of the towns, the original six towns, five Dutch and one English, the only one that doesn't exist really as a neighborhood today is New Utrecht. New Utrecht right. today, the only thing remaining of New Utrecht is New Utrecht High School, where my mother went in the 1930s, um, New Utrecht Avenue, and then the Utrecht Dutch Reformed Church. New Utrecht today, the Dutch town, is Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Fort Hamilton, Borough Park, Bensonhurst, um, I might be leaving one or two out. All of those current neighborhoods existed originally as the Dutch village of New Utrecht. That's the only one of the towns that doesn't exist as a neighborhood today. All the others are now still neighborhoods. Very interesting. That is very interesting. And so, you know, the Dutch were obviously settled. So uh, when, did you, when did we start seeing other types of, 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 of people from, uh, obviously, generally speaking, it's other countries that, that, start, uh, that started to settle into Brooklyn, like the French and, and uh, I gather the German. But if you could tell us some of the, uh, and, and we can short stay into the South Brooklyn, since right now we're, we've been talking a lot about that, how did that start to shape up as we got into the 1700s? Well, by the 1700s, the, the towns that we just mentioned were, were growing, okay? And um, the town uh, hall, or the, 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 I'm trying to think of the right word, the, the seat of government was originally in Gravesend, but in, uh, in 1699. But by the middle 1800s, or the early 1800s, the village of Flatbush was growing rapidly. And so the town seat moved from Gravesend to Flatbush. And the Flatbush Town Hall was built in 1875, which was the center of, of people gathering. And that town hall is still standing today um, in Flatbush. It was built in 1875, this beautiful uh, Gothic structure. Um, and... Um, and incidentally, the, the, the county seat of Flatbush ceased to exist after 1832 because of a love affair. I mean, here's an interesting piece of history. Um, a young man, an Irish gentleman named um, Robert Felton, he came here to make a fortune, came to America, came to New York. He came across the East River from Manhattan and landed, of course, by the Fulton Ferry Landing and, uh, by the East River on Old Fulton Street. And he started looking for work, and he couldn't find any work. And he saw a stagecoach, and the stagecoach on the top said Flatbush. He had no idea what Flatbush was. Gets on, and of course, this stagecoach takes him over the hills, which 
eventually became Prospect Park in the later 1800s. And uh, he got off somewhere near um, where today Flappish Avenue and Empire Boulevard meet. And he started going from farm to farm looking for work. Well, he found some work on a farm. And uh, after a few days, a lot of the workers on the farm made fun of his very heavy accent from Ireland. And uh, this older gentleman, who had a little too much to drink, kind of made fun of him and slapped Mr. Felton across the face. Well, Mr. Felton didn't care for that. Punched the guy back, and being drunk, the old gentleman fell backwards, hit his head on a rock, and he was killed. So Felton was put in the Flappish Town Jail, which also was the courthouse. And, of course, he was going to stay in trial eventually when the circuit judge came around for murder. Well, it was self-defense, and he didn't mean to kill the guy. So it was the, the daughter of the jailer. It was her job to bring food to whoever was in jail. And he, she kept bringing food to him until the circuit judge came a few days. Uh, the circuit judge came, and she believed his story, and they fell in love. Well, she set a fire to the rear of the courthouse, which was made of wood, and they were going to, she unlocked the jail cell, and they ran away to elope. Unfortunately, there was a drought at the time during this summer of 1832. So the jailhouse and the courthouse burned down. And that was the end of Flappish being the county seat. But by that time, in 1832, most of the population of Kings County was in what we now call downtown Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Heights area. So eventually the county seat was moved there and a new, brand-new county courthouse was erected and finally uh, uh, completed, I believe it was in 1860 or 1861, right across the street from where Brooklyn City Hall is, which today is Brooklyn Borough Hall. And that's a little story of how county seats change as population grows, and that's what happened in Brooklyn. That that's just brings a smile to my face here. I mean, obviously it's unfortunate that the guy died, but... Uh... Yeah, that, I know. The two fell okay. in love. <laughs> that the two fell in love is certainly a, a you know, very cinematic. And it's they a, ran away and eloped. And that story um, I found in two sources. And one is a book print published in 1881 called The Social History of Flatbush. And it was written by Gertrude Lefferts Vanderbilt. Huh. And she had a house on Lincoln Road in Flatbush Avenue. And she was a member of the Lefferts family and married into the Vanderbilt family. And today we have Lefferts Avenue and Vanderbilt Avenue in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And Le- Lefferts Garden as well, which is... Uh, Prospect uh, Lefferts very, Gardens, of course, that's right. Very, very beautiful place. Oh, uh, yes, as, as one of that area is landmarked. Now, you, you mentioned his Irish accent, and that, that uh, made me think just about the Irish demographic uh, in, in general, and obviously, uh, a, you know, a good amount of us know that the, the uh, Irish and German population exploded in the 1800s. Uh, when, did, when did it really start to, to uh, uh, be evident that the Irish were, were starting to move to Brooklyn? Well, uh, probably the late 1700s, but definitely, as you mentioned, definitely throughout the 1800s as the population. By the way, once train service started with the steam railroads that ran th- um, through, through Brooklyn, um, these railroads started to expand throughout the farmland by the middle to late 1800s. And the farmers 
saw the handwriting on the wall that it was more profitable for them to actually sell their farmland than to actually farm it. Mm-hmm. And what happened was a lot of the Germans that came started to establish beer breweries. And where did they build most of these? Right along the East River on the northern end of Brooklyn in Greenpoint, Williamsburg, and Bushwick. And, of course, the Germans brought their, their expertise of beer brewing from Europe, from Germany, and settled here in Kings County along the East River. Now, a lot of the Brooklyn products, besides beer, were actually being sent to the Midwestern part of the United States in the late 1800s. And this was due to the Erie Canal, which opened in 1825. And so beer... Uh, sugar refining, which was done here in Brooklyn, of course, the Domino Sugar Factory uh, in Williamsburg, uh, which is now being turned into condos, by the way. <laughs> um, At least they're doing something with it. <laughs> that's right. And and the Domino sign on the building is going to remain, even oh, though it's going to be condos, because it's a very historic location um, and an icon in Brooklyn history. Well, a lot of the Brooklyn products um, were being shipped from the East River, the beer breweries, the sugar refining, and other products as well, across the East River, up the Hudson River, to the Erie Canal, west across New York State, to uh, Erie and Buffalo, where the Erie Canal ends. And, of course, each of the Great Lakes are all interconnected. And, of course, you have Lake Superior and Lake Michigan near Chicago. And once you get there, then you have the riverboats down the Mississippi. So a lot of the Brooklyn products were being shipped and sold in the Midwestern part of America, um, all because of the Erie Canal, which opened in 1825. Now, of course, you're familiar with the Corning Glass Works in Corning, New York. That started here in Brooklyn as the Brooklyn Flint Glass Company. And in 1868, they wanted to be closer to the coal fields of northern Pennsylvania, where they would get their coal from to fire up their furnaces to make the glass. So in 1868, the Brooklyn Flint Glass Company moved via the Erie Canal and settled south of the Erie Canal in Corning, New York, and was able to get their coal from northern Pennsylvania. It was a much shorter trip to get the coal. And an early indication of, of what eventually happened uh, throughout America and throughout the cities uh, with, uh, with the uh, the factories being moved out into what people felt like was more profitable areas. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, um, and of course, the, the population explosion in Brooklyn started with the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, you had two cities. You had the city of New York, which was Manhattan, and you had the city of Brooklyn. Um, and by the way, all of Kings County was not the city of Brooklyn until 1896, because gradually... The city of Brooklyn was only the downtown Brooklyn Heights area, and that was in 1834 when that became a city. And by the way, the city of New York at that time did not want Brooklyn to become a city because it feared the economic and political rivalry, rivalry if Brooklyn did become a city. And eventually it trampled over it by uh, – the Brooklyn was the only one who was not as in favor as the others. Uh, when it came to a consolidation of all five boroughs. That's right. In fact, I just gave that lecture, believe it or not, um, in East Brunswick, New Jersey, um, on uh, Saturday evening. 
at a, a Jewish synagogue. Um, that it's the second time they invited me out there. These are a lot of them are former Brooklynites that live out there now. And my, the topic that I gave was the consolidation of the five boroughs. And that vote took place in 1897 uh, before they were boroughs. They were counties, and they're still counties. But on January 1st, 1898, they all became boroughs of the city of New York. And the vote in each of these boroughs was overwhelming in favor of consolidation, except in Brooklyn. And the vote in Brooklyn, Sam, 64,000, um, let's see, 875, something like that, for consolidation, and 64,000, um, let's say, 600 and some odd against consolidation. But the vote passed by only 277 votes in Brooklyn. In the other four counties or boroughs, the vote was overwhelming in favor of consolidation. Now, I've heard that the majority of, uh, the majority of uh, a lot of politicians in Brooklyn were against it, although Charlie Evans, who certainly had friends uh, in politics, Charlie Evans, who was uh, at, by that time uh, gaining a lot of more power with the, uh, with the, the Dodgers, uh, that he was actually for consolidation. Now, why why would he have been in favor? Why so the the people who ended up voting for it? What was the what are the the real benefits? What were the real benefits for Brooklyn to consolidate? Okay, the majority of the water that came into Brooklyn before consolidation was from Long Island, and it came through. By the way, did you ever drive on the Belt Parkway going in from Brooklyn into Queens? Yes. Okay. Well, there's an exit for the North Conduit and South Conduit. Right, uh, right just after you leave Brooklyn, you enter Queens. There's North Conduit Avenue and South Conduit Avenue. A conduit was a passageway. That's where the water pipes were, bringing water in from Long Island through Queens into Brooklyn. All right? But New York City, that was Manhattan, got their water primarily from upstate, the Catskills, which we still get today. And it's some of the finest water in all of the United States. So a lot of the reasoning that the, the um, vote did pass in Brooklyn by only 277 votes is the fact that the farmers in the southern end and eastern end of Brooklyn at that time during the vote, they wanted the modern amenities of being connected to the New York City water supply. They wanted paved streets, and they wanted modern, a modern sewer system because a good chunk of Brooklyn in the east and the southern end were still unpaved at that time. And being connected to the rest of the city, in other words, all the boroughs being connected, the tax base would be much higher, the population would be much higher, and there'd be more money available to get Brooklyn these modern amenities. So this was a very important thing. And incidentally, the mayor of Long Island City, and that was another city, by the way, he overwhelmingly hoped that the people in Queens would vote to consolidate because he hoped to be the new mayor of the greatest city of New York. <laughs> and that did not happen. <laughs> he was not the new mayor. So uh, there was a lot of politics involved. And anyone listening from upstate New York, by the way, there was a Republican from way upstate New York named Thomas Platt, is that a hint to a city up in upstate New York? Plattsburgh, New York? 
uh, okay, near the Canadian border. He was known as the Easy Boss, and he was a big player in having the consolidation done. Um, and there's another gentleman that most people never even heard of, Andrew Haskell Green, who lived in Manhattan, lived in New York City, and he started this whole process of the talk of consolidation. And that started after the Brooklyn Bridge was built, connecting the two major cities, Brooklyn and New York. And Andrew Haskell Green, he established Central Park, the Museum of Natural History, the New York Public Library on 42nd Street, and many, many other things in New York City. And he was very instrumental in coordinating the consolidation of the five boroughs. And very few people know about him. Now, is that where the name Fort Green comes from? No, absolutely not. Fort Green, uh, I forgot his first name, but Mr. Green was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Oh. And incidentally, many streets in Williamsburg are named after signers of the Declaration of Independence. And one of those streets has the wrong name on it for over 150 years. <laughs> and what if you that? go down Bedford Avenue into Williamsburg, you're going to pass a street right, when, right near where the Brooklyn Queens Expressway passes by underneath. And it's called Keep Street, K-E-A-P. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's the wrong name. And he was one of the final signers of the Declaration of Independence. His name was Thomas McKeon, M, small c, K, e, capital K-E-A-N. His penmanship, Sam, was so poor that it was read as Keep instead of McKeon. Oh, so for over 150 years, the wrong name is on the street. And, and, they have no, and of course, they're not going to change it. I mean, you know, it's just how it is. They're not, but we'd like to give the guy his, his, his due, you know. I mean, he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. If there were any school principals for the uh, 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 chancellor for the Board of Education listening or teachers listening, there's a lot of schools now that don't even do penmanship anymore because everybody is using computers, typing out their reports and everything else in their notes. But this guy's penmanship was so poor that the, his wrong name is on the street in Williamsburg. Maybe he was a lefty like me because I, I don't have that a very good handwriting. And, uh, <laughs> generally, lefties, it seems, uh, don't have too, too good a handwriting. Um, so uh, let, let's go to the Jewish population. Uh, you know, we're, we don't have uh, terribly too much time, and obviously there's just so much to talk about when it comes to how Brooklyn evolved. Um, when when the uh, the Jewish populations of Russia uh, of, of Germany and and so forth started flooding into uh, into the New World, um, you know we know about Williamsburg. We we know about we know about uh, obviously Delancey Street in Manhattan. Where else in Brooklyn uh, did, did they generally go? And is, did did they ever make make it east uh, further east than we uh, we you know generally know? Yes, absolutely. First of all, when the, after the Brooklyn Bridge opened and the population of Kings County started to expand, because now people are able to come into Brooklyn with their own horses and wagons. They didn't have to uh, wait for a ferry boat. They can just come across the bridge. And by the way, the bridge had a toll originally. I'm not sure what it cost, but it was probably like a penny, five cents, something like that. That toll was eliminated, I think, in 1910 or 1911. So, so it was obvious they needed yeah, another it, bridge. It had a, it had a walking hole as well? Um, you know, I'm not sure, but maybe. But definitely, 
if you were on a horse or a horse and wagon, there, there was a toll, definitely. So 20 years after the Brooklyn Bridge opened, the Williamsburg Bridge opened. And by that time, in 1903, the tenements of the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which were filled and a lot of Orthodox Jews, they started to stream across the Williamsburg Bridge into Williamsburg. And the bridge got a nickname. It was known as the Jews' Highway. Because a lot of these Jews in the tenements started to move across and settle into Williamsburg. And gradually, as the railroads started to expand into the farmland, as the years went on by the 19-teens, 1920s, and 30s, the Jews started to expand into Brownsville and East New York. And incidentally, um, you had a huge Jewish population in Brownsville and East New York in the 1920s, 30s, and into the 40s. Now, we know that the Italians had their mafia, but the Jews, not to be outdone, had their own crime syndicate known as Murder Incorporated. And where was that? Brownsville and East New York. And, uh, and a lot of the synagogues in that neighborhood today of East New York and Brownsville are no longer synagogues. Today, they're either churches or used for other things because as time went on, demographics changed, and there are probably next to no Jews in, in East New York today. Wow. Uh, I, I mean, how did those demographics, I know, you know, we, there's assumptions and we know, uh, I, I don't want to assume that anybody knows what the demographics are in Brownsville and East New York now, but, but how did that change and what, is, what were some of the circumstances that led to that change? Okay. First of all, by the 19, oh, let's say the 1950s, the interstate highway system was established by uh, President Eisenhower. And, this, and after World War II, America fell in love with the automobile, these classic cars with the fins on them in the 1950s, and people started traveling. And you now move into the 1960s, a new Brooklyn suburb opened up, known as South Florida. <laughs> and a lot of people started moving to uh, this new Brooklyn suburb. I know my parents moved to uh, South Florida in 1973, and today you have Brooklyn clubs all over South Florida, and believe it or not, even in Las Vegas. And these are former Brooklynites, uh, many Jews, and many who are not Jews, you know, expanding across the country, and they have Brooklyn clubs. In fact, one of these clubs in South Florida has invited me to do a nostalgic Brooklyn January. So uh, I'll be flying down there to do a program for them. And, okay. um so demographics change, neighborhoods change, and this is just an ongoing thing that, that happens co continuously. Now, now, I know that the, the black community is generally is now in Brownsville and East New York. Where was the black community originally before, let's say, the, you know, the, the early 10s and 20s? Uh, where, where did uh, the black community find itself in Brooklyn? Well, there wasn't very much of a black community in the 19-teens. Uh, um, first of all, in Sheepshead Bay, you had, and in Brighton Beach, you had, um, there were three horse racing tracks in Brooklyn. You had the Sheepshead Bay racetrack, the Brighton Beach racetrack, and the Graves End racetrack. And believe it or not, some of the jockeys were black, the, the, the groomers were black, and the if you go into Sheepshead Bay on East 15th Street between 
Gray's and Neck Road and Avenue X. Um, on the east side of the street, there is the First Baptist Church of Sheepshead Bay that's still there today. And it opened in 1901. And it was founded by a woman named um, Mother, Me- Mother Me- uh, Maria Fisher. Maria Fisher sold her homemade cakes and pies and sandwiches at the Sheepshead Bay racetrack. But there was no place for the black workers to worship. They didn't have their own church. So she approached a gentleman who was one of the owners of the Brighton Beach racetrack, a gentleman named William Engman. And he knew his friends who were owners of the Sheepshead Bay track and said, Mr. Engman, can you ask your friends at the Sheepshead Bay track if they could set aside a small parcel of land at the far end of the track so the Negro workers at the track, that was the term used, of course, back then, could we set up our own small black chapel? And that was done. And someone donated bricks, someone donated a wheelbarrow, and Mother Maria Fisher wheelbarrowed the first load of bricks to build the First Baptist Church of Sheepshead Bay. And that was in 1901. And that church is still there today. And if you go right in that vicinity of the church, there are black families still living around there, and quite a few of them are descendants of the racetrack, of the, the Sheepshead Bay racetrack at the turn of the century. Very interesting. And over yeah, the entrance to the uh, church, it says Mother Maria Fisher Hall. Right. It's very, remarkable. very interesting. And uh, obviously, I know you need to go, Ron, but there's so much to talk about. And uh, to all the listeners out there who don't want us to go, we will certainly <laughs> have Ron on again uh, to to uh, keep talking about how uh, how Brooklyn has shaped up over the years. And uh, Ron, as always, thank you very, very much for uh, for joining my pleasure, Sam, and I hope everyone had a, a good history lesson, and there'll be a test next week. <laughs> <laughs> and to all you teachers out there, uh, you know, play this for your for your students and uh, pop quiz them next week as well. So thank and you I very much, Ron. For thirty nine years. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, again, appreciate it, Ron, and we'll uh, we'll certainly have you on again soon. Okay, Sam. You take care now. That's our show, everybody. Have a good one. Take care. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.